Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, I Will Make You. It's based upon the lectionary readings for January 26, 2020. When I was 11 years old, my childhood church held a series of revival meetings for children. Every evening for a week, I listened from the front pew as an enthusiastic guest preacher invited me and my Sunday school classmates to dedicate our whole hearts, lives, dreams, and futures to God. In no uncertain terms, he told us that God wanted us to give up everything for the one who gave up everything for us, and to use our talents and treasures not to further our own interests, but to spread Christ's message of love and salvation to the world. I remember feeling exhilarated as I sat in church that week, imagining the radical, sold-out-for-Jesus life the preacher described. But I also remember feeling apprehensive and disoriented. Whether or not the minister intended it, what I took away from his sermons was that I couldn't serve Jesus properly unless I became someone fundamentally different from who I was. My bookish shyness and introversion would have to give way to voluble charisma and flair. I'd have to say goodbye to the United States and head to some far-flung corner of the world I'd never heard of. I'd have to become a pro at face-to-face and door-to-door evangelism. I'd have to surrender my dreams of writing and become useful. In the version of discipleship I conjured up as a kid, my value in God's kingdom existed in inverse proportion to my innate loves interests, desires, and hopes. The only authentic way to follow Jesus was to somehow become not me. In our gospel reading this week, Jesus approaches two sets of fishermen by the Sea of Galilee and says to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately, Matthew's gospel tells us, the men left their boats and followed Jesus. I'll be honest, I don't enjoy fishing. When I was a little girl, my father would take me along on occasional fishing trips, and I would invariably ruin them with my squeamishness. Isn't that hook hurting the worm? Won't the fish's mouth get cut by the hook? Why are you letting that poor fish gasp in the bucket? It's still alive. Hard as I tried to enjoy the sunlight on the water, the cool ocean breeze, the satisfaction of a good catch, I couldn't get over what I saw as the essential violence at the heart of fishing. A living creature offered up as bait another living creature torn by a sharp hook or hauled out of its native element with a net and left to die for lack of air. Eventually, my dad took the hint and my younger brother, who loves fishing to this day, took over as his seafaring companion. All of that to say, I don't easily connect to Jesus' invitation to fish for people. Something about the metaphor makes me squirm. It doesn't help that when I first learned the story of Jesus calling his disciples, it was framed as evangelistic in a very particular sense. The fish represented lost souls doomed to hellfire, hooking them for Jesus, getting them to church, to youth group, to the altar, leading them to say the sinner's prayer and accept Jesus as their personal savior, insisting that only our version of Christianity held the truth, which would save them from damnation, was the only hope those poor fish had. So, was I ready as that revival preacher told my 11-year-old self to give up everything, leave all I know and love and follow Jesus? Was I willing to fish for lost souls? Or would I cling to my worldly boats and nets, ignore Jesus' call, 
and let countless sinners die without salvation. Gospel stories are challenging to grasp even at the best of times, but years of baggage like mine can make the task even harder. But what strikes me now as I think about Jesus calling Simon, Andrew, James, and John into lives of discipleship is how familiar and close to home his call actually was. Jesus did not invite them to abandon who they were. He invited them to become their most authentic, God-ordained selves. He invited them to live into the fullness of the Imago Dei they were born with. By which I mean, Jesus' invitation to his first disciples was specific and particular, rooted in the language, culture, and vocation they knew best. What metaphor would make more sense to four fishermen than the metaphor of fishing for people? Simon and Andrew would have understood the nuances of that metaphor in ways I never will. James and John knew from years of hard-won experience what depths of patience, resilience, intuition, and artistry professional fishing required. These men knew the tools of the trade, the limitations of their bodies, and the potential dangers those limitations posed, and the life-and-death importance of timing, humility, and discretion. Most of all, they knew the water. They knew how to respect it, how to listen to it, and how to bring forth its best in due time. When Jesus called these tried-and-true fishermen to follow him, they understood the call not as a directive to leave their experience and intelligence behind, but to bring the best of their core selves forward, to become even more fully and freely themselves. In other words, I don't believe anymore that I'm meant to follow Jesus into a self-annihilating abstract. We're not supposed to heed his call in general, as if Christianity comes in a number of prepackaged cookie-cutter shapes we have to pummel ourselves into. If we're going to follow him at all, we'll have to do it in the unique particulars of the lives, communities, cultures, families, and vocations we find ourselves in. We'll have to trust that God prizes our intellects, our memories, our backgrounds, our educations, our skills, and that he will multiply, shape, and bring to fruition everything we offer up to him in faith from the daily stuff of our lives. I will make you, he tells the fishermen. I will take, cultivate, deepen, magnify, purify, protect, and perfect the people God created you to be. I don't mean to suggest that discipleship won't require sacrifice or change or risk. It will. But I am convinced these days that God is gentler with us than we are with ourselves. The spiritual transformations that have had the most traction and power in my life have been the ones that also feel the most organic, the most ordinary, the most close to home. Surrender to Jesus isn't only about renunciation, it's about resurrection. It's about abundant and authentic life. When Jesus promises to make us, it's a commitment to nurture us, not a threat to sever us from all we love. It's a promise rooted in gentleness and respect, not violence and coercion. It's a promise that when we dare to let go, the things we relinquish might be returned to us anew, enlivened in ways we could not have imagined on our own. Most importantly, it's a promise from God to us, not from us to God. As Barbara Brown Taylor so aptly puts it, the story of this gospel is a miracle story. Jesus calls and the four fishermen immediately follow. No hesitations, no questions asked. Is this because they are men of superhuman courage or prophetic foreknowledge? Of course not. 
These are the same guys who later in the Gospels doubt, deny, and abandon Jesus. They're as fallible and as ordinary as the rest of us, and their own volition can't get them very far. No, they immediately follow Jesus because Jesus makes it possible for them to do so. This is not a story about us, Taylor writes. It's a story about God and about God's ability not only to call us, but also to create us as people who are able to follow. Able to follow because we cannot take our eyes off the one who calls us, because he interests us more than anything else in our lives, because he seems to know what we hunger for, and because he seems to be food. What bothered me as a child, and bothers me still about the fishing metaphor, is that we so easily misinterpret it to mean that we have the power to hook or to catch others for God. We don't. We are not called to cajole, manipulate, trap, bully, or even persuade others to accept Jesus or join our religion. It is God alone who captures the imagination. God alone who makes the vision of his kingdom come alive in a human soul. All we can do is embody that vision in the particulars of our lives, reflecting into the water the profound beauty of who Christ is. The rest is up to God. In the end, Jesus' invitation is gospel, a good news. If it's not good news, it's not God. If it's not good news for all, it's not God. Evangelism becomes abusive when we twist it for our own convenience, severing it from its social, economic, and cultural context in order to institutionalize and idolize what is not God. It becomes abusive when we focus on numbers, formulas, and glossy success stories, forgetting that God came to call people, fish for people, people who are caught in the nets of exploitation, corruption, poverty, war, exile, homelessness, violence, disease, climate change, racism, sexism, homophobia, the list goes on and on and on. What would count as good news for them? The four men immediately left their nets and followed Jesus. In time, they made the gospel their own, sharing its radical power through the details of their own lives and stories. What is the gospel according to you? What is your good news? And how will you share it in the turbulent waters of your particular time and place? Follow me, and I will make you. Jesus is trustworthy. He will. For books this week, Dan reviews Working, Researching, Interviewing, Writing by Robert A. Carroll. This slender memoir easily makes my best books of the year list. I couldn't put it down. Robert Caro, born in 1935, is widely acknowledged as the most important political biographer of our times, and for 50 years he has proven himself to be so much more. A brilliant historian, an indefatigable investigative journalist, and master storyteller. His dozens of awards include two Pulitzer Prizes, two National Book Awards, three National Book Critics Circle Awards, and the National Humanities Medal. His distinguished career rests upon just two biographies, The Power Broker, about the New York City urban planner Robert Moses, and his five-volume biography, The Years of Lyndon Johnson. What has fascinated Caro for 50 years, and is the common theme in both biographies, is the nature of political power. And not just theoretical power in the abstract, like he learned at Princeton and Harvard in complicated equations on a blackboard, but rather the raw, naked essence of such power. He wanted to find out how things really worked. 
How, for example, did Robert Moses wield far more power than any mayor or governor, even though he was never elected to any office or post? How did he design and implement his far-reaching vision for so much of New York City's urban planning, its bridges, parks, expressways? And what were the consequences of this use of naked power on the powerless, like the 250,000 poor people displaced by a Moses project that refused to move a highway design even one-tenth of a mile in order to protect the interests of the rich? President Johnson provided a national case study of the nature of political power that was used for great good, like civil rights legislation, but that also resulted in catastrophic failures, like Vietnam. The 14 chapters in this book contain both older and newer pieces. In them, Caro describes how he works and writes. For the Moses biography, he did 522 interviews. For the Johnson ones, he lost count. Thousands. To truly understand Johnson, Caro, the New York Jew, moved his family to dusty West Texas, where the president grew up in grinding poverty. Nor was Caro interested in mere facts. These essays explain his passion for storytelling that draws the reader into a palpable sense of time, place, and mood of the events he describes. And behind all of this erudition and intellectual passion is a man who is both hilarious and self-effacing. For films this week, Dan reviews Rolling Thunder Review. Since Bob Dylan had quit touring in 1966, it was big news that in the fall of 1975, he had gathered a new troupe of bandmates and set out on the Rolling Thunder Review concert tour that was designed to play in small venues and cities. Martin Scorsese's mick genre film combines both fact and fiction to tell that story in a tone that is both nostalgic, good times, and obsequious. It's all about Bob. Surprise. This was the period of Dylan's kabuki-like white clown face, and his entourage included Allen Ginsberg, Joan Baez, Joni Mitchell, Sam Shepard, and incoherent Patti Smith and others. About half the film is archival footage of these concerts, and it was pure pleasure to watch Dylan in action. But the audience has no reason to know or determine the fictional parts of the film, like when Jim Giannopoulos is depicted as a promoter of the tour, even though he was in law school at the time, or when Sharon Stone falsely portrays herself as being part of the tour. Another fictional character is Stefan van Dorp, who claims he is filming the tour. The 78-year-old Dylan is interviewed for his memories about the review, but were never told that the softball questions were by his manager. A coy Dylan says that he doesn't even remember anything about the Rolling Thunder review, saying it happened so long ago I wasn't even born. He finds it impossible to get to the core of what it was all about because it's about nothing. In one revealing comment, Baez remarks, when Bob starts to sing, everything is forgiven. I guess. I watched this film on Netflix streaming. And finally, as we honor the legacy of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. this week, an excerpt from I Have a Dream. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair. I say to you today, my friends, and so even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners 
will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day, down in Alabama, with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, one day, right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day, Every valley shall be exalted, and every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for January 26, 2020. I'm Debbie Thomas.